We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. I've done a program before based on a book by Ben McIntyre called The Spy and the Traitor, a true story about the most important spy who defected to the West from the Soviet Union. He leaked information to the West that probably averted an all-out nuclear war. Ben has also written a number of other true-life books about spies and spying in World War II and in the Cold War. So I was interested to see that he'd written an article for the Times newspaper about the Munich Agreement that the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain with French Premier Gladier negotiated with the mediation of the Italian fascist leader Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler in September 1938. The newspaper article was prompted by a movie on Netflix about Neville Chamberlain and this incident. The movie's called Munich, The Edge of War. Ben McIntyre concludes that Chamberlain wasn't taken in by Hitler. Well, not entirely. He says that England wasn't prepared for war at that time. Following Munich, McIntyre tells us that Chamberlain took steps to speed up the rearmament of England. He brought in conscription, doubled the size of the Territorial Army, ordered more bombers and created the Ministry of Supply to coordinate the provision of equipment for all three branches of the armed forces. Bend summed up his point of view by paying this tribute to what Chamberlain had achieved by averting war in September 1938. The Britain that faced Germany in September 1939 was far better prepared for war than it had been a year earlier. All of this seems to have some merit, but there were other things that made all of those points seem to me to be of small consequence compared to what Chamberlain had given away at Munich. Let's begin this story at the end of the surrender by the British and the French to Hitler of the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia. The Tatra mountain range, which had recently been reinforced by some of the most formidable defences in Europe, formed the main Czech defences against the Germans. There was no easy way around the ends of these defences. Czechoslovakia also had a massive, well-trained, well-equipped and well-led army of 35 divisions, over half a million men. It was well equipped with modern weapons, including some of the best tanks in Europe made by the Skoda Works. German officers in 1939, after they'd had a chance to have a close look at the Czech defences, said they were impressive and probably would have been impregnable to the German army. After the Germans had taken over the Sudetenland, Hitler almost had a coronary when he realised how strong the Czech defences and military were. He said, with hindsight, about the confrontation that he had engineered over the Sudetenland, that he was greatly disturbed by what he had found. 
He said that maybe the German army could have gone around their defences, but they could never have overcome them head-on. The Germans didn't have a significant numerical superiority over the Czechs. They didn't have the element of surprise. The Russians were willing to march to the support of Czechoslovakia against Germany, but only if France honoured its commitments to support that country. To get to Czechoslovakia, the Russians would have had to have crossed Romania. Romania was likely to have allowed them to. Even ignoring the real difficulties that the Germans would have had in defeating the Czech army, there was a huge concern that the German army had. Before Hitler could push his luck with the British and French in early 1938, his air force, the Luftwaffe, had virtually none of the fuel that they would need to put their air force into the skies. By the stage of military aircraft development, high-performance modern military aircraft needed high-octane ethyl petrol. To make this petrol, you needed an additive called tetraethyl lead. The German plants to produce this were still being built then, with the help of the American Standard Oil Company. But they weren't yet producing any tetraethyl, and that wouldn't happen for another year. Hitler couldn't run the risk of pushing his luck in intimidating England and France into giving him the Sudetenland unless it could be guaranteed that the Luftwaffe could fly. The game of brinkmanship over Czechoslovakia could easily have turned into a war. If it did, Germany was probably doomed because the Luftwaffe couldn't operate effectively. The Germans, with the final acquisition of the rest of Czechoslovakia in March 1939, acquired at one stroke one and a half million rifles, 750 aircraft, 600 tanks and 2,000 field guns, all of which were to prove useful in the months and years to come. In the time between September 1938 and 1939, the Germans thus became immensely better armed than they had been at the time of the crisis. So while England may have been much better prepared for war when it started, handing the Sudetenland over to Hitler and then his seizing Czechoslovakia had made Germany much more prepared for war than England and France. No one was more worried about the prospect of war with England and France in 1938 than the German High Command. The chief of the German Army General Staff, Ludwig Beck, on 5 May 1938, told Hitler that the German Army was in no position to win a war with England and France if one was started then. On 16 July, Beck issued a written memorandum to the senior German Army officers, warning of the dire consequences for Germany if it went to war. Various things had happened with the army leading up to this event that made many of the senior officers cautious about confronting Hitler. With no support from them, Beck resigned on 18 August 1938 as the tension between Germany, England, France and Czechoslovakia mounted, apparently heading to a war. Hitler appointed Beck's subordinate, Franz Halder to replace him. But Halder was not a Nazi general. Halder's opposition to provoking a war over the Sudetenland was supported by a number of very senior and significant German generals and leaders. These included the head of the German military intelligence, the Abwehr Admiral Canaris, who would later be hung in 1944 as a 
conspirator in the 20th July 1944 plot to assassinate Hitler. Another one of the generals willing to join overthrowing Hitler was General Erwin von Witzleben, who commanded the vital Berlin garrison. If there was a coup, those troops would be the ones to make it happen. A number of younger officers and important civilians also were willing to join in the plot to overthrow Hitler. Detailed plans started about how to carry out the coup. There were certainly issues about support from other officers in the German army and from the general populace. But Hitler, by pressing on with his demands against Czechoslovakia, was, unknown to him, giving his opponents the opportunity to end his regime immediately. There was another huge part to what was happening in Europe at this time that also made it unlikely that Hitler could pull off a violent seizure of Czechoslovakia. Russia had an alliance with Czechoslovakia. It was only too happy to intervene in support of Czechoslovakia. It would need to move its troops through Romania to assist, but as I've said already, that wasn't expected to be a problem. France also had a treaty with Czechoslovakia. At this point, things got a bit like World War I and how it started. If France went to war with Germany, then England would have to come to France's aid. But France had been a political mess since the end of World War I. In more recent times, France had no government on the day that Hitler came to power, and then again, no government on the day that the Germans marched into Austria. France really looked to England for leadership. Chamberlain was not the strong man that Czechoslovakia needed right now if it was going to be saved from Adolf Hitler, the man who was widely known by the nickname Wolf. Chamberlain and many of the British politicians thought that if England went to war against Germany, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, would bomb English cities into ruins. English people at that time had probably seen, or at least knew about the film, Things to Come. It had brought H.G. Wells' book of the same name to the screen in 1936, a movie about the horrors of bombers attacking and devastating modern cities. If that wasn't enough for you to be terrified, on 26 April 1937, the German and Italian air forces bombed the small Spanish town of Guernica. Nightmare images of destruction were shown to the world, confirming H.G. Wells' doomsday predictions as being right. The common understanding of people then was that the bomber would always get through any and every defence. A bit like the COVID-19 virus, the predictions of the dire consequences of the bombing attacks were absolutely terrifying. One of England's leading military experts of the day, Sir Basil Lydell Hart, predicted that in the first week of a bombing attack on London, there would be 250,000 civilian deaths and injuries. Churchill predicted that London, utterly defenceless in the face of such attacks, as all the experts believed, would see three to four million people fleeing the city to the country. A 1937 report issued by the British Military Command predicted that a sustained German bombing attack, which is exactly what the Germans launched in 1940, would leave 600,000 people dead and 1.2 million wounded. There would be mass panic, it said. People would refuse to go to work. Industrial production would grind to a halt. 
The army wouldn't be able to resist the German invasion because it would be fully occupied in maintaining law and order in the face of the panicking civilian population. The British government, before the war, thought of building massive bomb shelters all across London. It abandoned the idea because they were afraid that the people who took refuge in these bomb shelters would be so terrified that they wouldn't come out again. Psychiatric hospitals were built and staffed outside London to cope with the flood of people who would break down under the intense pressure of the bombing. England was always focused on its empire overseas and not Europe. Well, apart from every war in Europe that it has been drawn into, why on earth would England go to war over Czechoslovakia? As Chamberlain said in a BBC radio broadcast on 27 September 1938, How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. Hitler was not happy with negotiations. He didn't want a peaceful settlement. He wanted war. It looked like things were heading that way again after the 15 September meeting when Czechoslovakia was forced to agree to give the Sudetenland to the Germans, which was why Chamberlain made the speech that I've just played a part of when Hitler was again threatening war anyway. But Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe and the deputy Führer, was terrified of Germany getting into a war it couldn't win and successfully got Hitler reluctantly to agree to another meeting with Chamberlain, Deladier and Benito Mussolini. At that meeting, Chamberlain led and Deladier followed. The French had a treaty with Czechoslovakia to help it if the Germans attacked, the Russians the same. But Chamberlain wanted the whole thing to go away and gave in to Hitler. The French didn't want to go it alone against the Germans and they followed Chamberlain's lead. The Russians weren't going to take on the Germans by themselves, especially if the French weren't going to fight, so they let it all happen. This was not the last time Goering proved reluctant to start a war. When England declared war on Germany on 3 September 1939, starting World War II off in earnest, Goering's response was, God help us! After the Czechoslovakian question was resolved, Goering and Hitler never had the same close relationship, and over the next years, until the end of the war, the distance between the two of them increased. Goering hadn't shown the same enthusiasm for going to war that Hitler expected, indeed demanded, of his followers. This agreement that required Czechoslovakia to hand over the Sudetenland to Germany changed everything in Central Europe and shaped the course of World War II. This happened because... World War II now took a different course to what would have happened if Chamberlain hadn't given in to Hitler. All of the countries in Eastern Europe saw that England and France couldn't be counted on to help them in the face of German aggression. Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria and Poland all snuggled up closer to Nazi Germany. In the war that would come with Russia, Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania joined as active allies, providing troops and equipment, and allowed the Germans to deploy and launch their troops for the invasion of Russia from their territories. Poland and Hungary grabbed more land for themselves from Czechoslovakia immediately after Chamberlain's 
deal with Hitler at Munich. Russia would enter into a non-aggression pact with Hitler just before he invaded Poland. This helped Hitler finish off Poland and then turn and deploy his whole forces against the West. Then he could turn on Russia again with his entire forces. The Munich Treaty ended the possibility of the German army staging a coup to remove Hitler from power, which would have meant that World War II didn't happen. Even if there had been no coup, then at least the states of Eastern Europe and Russia would have likely stood by France and England and opposed Hitler. Again, no World War II. Hitler would have suffered a loss of face if he failed to take the Sudetenland off Czechoslovakia and had failed in his attempt. There is good reason to believe that his army would have been beaten by the Czech army. Chamberlain, after returning from Munich, held up a piece of paper signed by him and Hitler, promising that they would work together for peace and announced, Peace in our times! Just five months later, the Germans took over the rest of Czechoslovakia. The World War started just under a year after this cowardly behaviour by England and France. The one good thing that came from this was that England and France now understood that Hitler couldn't be trusted, the bad thing was that the war that came about because of the betrayal of Czechoslovakia and for the reasons I've talked about changed the whole political situation in Central Europe and ultimately cost tens of millions of lives. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE. Absolutely fantastic. I have no idea what CYKIA stands for.